Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Caroline Crampton standing in for your regular host Helen Lewis. On this week's podcast, I talk to George Eaton and Stephen Bush about the Labour leadership, Labour's relationship with the economy and Tim Farron. And then John Elledge and Barbara Speed talk about London's tube map. And finally, Tosin Thompson and Anusha Kellyan talk about why we get bored. I'm here with our political editor George Eaton and our Staggers editor Stephen Bush and this week we're going to start off by talking about Labour and the economy, an issue that gravely hampered them during the election and which George has explored further in his column this week. Yes, so I start by reminding um, readers how when the Conservatives came to power in 2010, um, a lot of people such as Mervyn King, the then governor of the Bank of England, predicted that um, they'd be out of power for a generation due to the... uh, harsh austerity measures they'd have to impose. And now, of course, it's the party that lost in 2010 that opposed excessive austerity Labour that is spoken of as potentially facing years in in the electoral wilderness. And I think one of the reasons um, for this uh, unexpected outcome is that uh, Osborne so successfully uh, pinned the blame for the cuts on Labour by presenting the cuts as a necessary corrective to years of socialist profligacy and um, he was able to completely outplay them on that issue and so I look now at how Labour can respond as as for instance Osborne proposes measures such as a new budget surplus law forcing governments to pay down debts uh, in normal times when the economy is growing and um, I don't think politically there's any option for Labour but to uh, support that measure even though I think it's um, bad economic policy, simply because the uh, the image of them as a profligate party is so great that uh, they can't afford to have to be seen to have learned nothing from mm. from the defeat. There is this idea, Stephen, that because both after the 2010 election and now after the 2015 election, Labour's having a months-long leadership uh, sort of introspective contest about who's going to be their next leader, that this allows the Conservatives to grab hold of the narrative and get away on their, uh, convincing the nation that their plan is the right one before Labour's even had time to draw breath. Uh, do you think this is this is true? Is this going to uh, hamper them this time around? No, I, I don't think that was what hampered them last time around either. Uh, I think basically elections are, effectively, it's a bird in the hand versus two in the bush. And the opposition 
always has the challenge of convincing the electorate to let go of what they have in order to make a grab at something else. Labour's 2001 pitch was virtually identical to its 1992 pitch. It's just that taxes for more public spending is quite a good bet when you've already got the taxes and the more public spending. It's quite a bad bet when you've already got the tax cut. Um, so, you know, the government will always decide effectively what the status quo is, and the opposition will always effectively have to try and persuade people that it is the status quo, but better. What Cameron and Osborne did well is they effectively moved very swiftly from a, we'll give you this Labour spending, but hopefully we'll give you a tax cut as well, to there's been a crisis, we are the um, the best placed to help you out of this hole. To be honest, I mean, Osborne's cap is probably not deliverable economically, uh, if it is, and you can deliver it without busting the economy, Labour should want to sign up to it. If it's not, then they can. Then their 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 challenge is much easier because they can go look. You've crashed the car. The big problem for the last five years is they they had a leadership which continually sort of bet on the worst case scenario, and when it didn't happen, they had we nothing saw, else. Yeah, they had yeah. nothing else. And so. So what you're saying there is that actually the political agility of the Labour leadership is, is far more important when it comes to Labour's trust on the economy than perhaps their ideas are. Which brings us around to talk about who might be the head of that leadership. Um, it was uh, the Parliamentary Labour Party had its hustings for the candidates this week. And George, you were waiting outside. Tell us what intelligence you picked mm. up. So uh, unsurprisingly, all of the uh, main candidates' camps came out and, and briefed that their man or woman had won. Um, but more neutral observers within the party um, suggested that there was no runaway winner. No one quite uh, quite dazzled, quite shined. Um, but we did learn a bit more about their positions on Europe. So Liz Kendall said it would be a profound mistake for Labour to somehow boycott the main uh, yes campaign during the referendum. And this is the, this is the idea that's been floated that uh, it would it would look bad for uh, Labour to share a platform with the Prime Minister effectively in campaigning to stay into the European Union. She's against that. That's right. Um, although I don't think she'd go as far as sharing a platform with David Cameron, but doesn't think that Labour should uh, uh, have no involvement at all with the with the cross-party campaign. Instead, it should try to own it in, in, in some ways and try and uh, define it in, so in Labour terms. A bit like Alistair Darling and the Better Together campaign during the referendum, that sort of style. Yes, and I think she thinks there's political advantage in Labour being seen as at the forefront of that campaign rather than sort of slightly in the background, sort of slightly scared to make the case. Um, and then they um, gave their their usual lines on strategy. So Andy Burnham saying, you know, we don't win when we're the same as the Tories, we win when we're better than them, which is a clear dig at uh, Liz Kendall. Um, Kendall replying that um, you know, don't elect a leader who will play into David Cameron and George Osborne's hands. So this is the idea that except what the Tories want is for Labour to appear economically reckless. And that's why Kendall has said she would support George Osborne's um, new budget surplus law. And it is true that when you speak to Conservatives in private, they do fear Kendall the most because they say she would find they would find it much harder to attack her than they would um, Andy Burnham and Yvette Cooper. And that's not just because of her stance on the economy, but also because she's the only candidate who was elected in 2010 who didn't serve in the last uh, Labour government. And therefore, they can't um, pin all of the errors and mistakes that were made uh, during that long period in office. Uh, on Liz Kendall. And what about the uh, the attitude to the past five years and the Miliband era, of which all of the candidates were in some way part? Yes. Um, how, are they, how are they dealing with that? 
Yes, yeah, so Andy Burnham said quite interestingly in a line that was immediately exploited by um, his opponents that on inequality they have to be careful not to uh, disown, not to distance themselves too much from the last five years because I think there is a sense that uh, Ed Miliband's highlighting of inequality as an economic problem is worth salvaging and, and uh, Miliband's uh, remaining allies point out that even Tony Blair in his post-election uh, piece uh, said that he recognised that as a as a corrective to his his politics and and that it was right for Labour to to focus more on inequality than it had done in the past. Um, but you see in the language Liz Kendall uses in the positions she takes that she thinks that there can't be any ambiguity. We can't uh, change the messenger, but not change the message, and and uh, or or simply offer the same um, manifesto again with a sort of slightly different front cover. Um, we do need a completely uh, clean break. Um, and I think uh, you know, she has to do more to, to persuade activists of that message, a lot of whom uh, were very supportive of Ed Miliband's agenda. Um, but that is quite a strong pitch for her if she can uh, run a strong campaign in, in the months that remain. And Stephen, what is your sense among those activists? How, how is that uh, attitude to Labour's recent past going to play? I mean... I think it was significant also that GMB hustings, Andy Burnham described the 2015 manifesto as the best manifesto he'd stood on in four elections. I mean, the the, la- the Labour membership is the last electorate left from the old system, and they voted for David Miliband by a heavier margin than either the members or the, the trade union section, uh, largely because A, they'd heard of him, and B, they were told by the press that he was the winner. I think the fact there is still hunger for the likes of Keir Starmer to stand shows they're not convinced by the frontrunner and by Yvette Cooper, who are the candidates who the average member has heard of. So there is a there is a majority within the membership to be won for Liz Kendall. It is a very very big ask to go out and win it, but you can see how you can see the outlines of it already. Um, yeah, I mean, I I don't think it's possible, partly because there isn't a big set piece event in this uh, leadership election. I think the decision by the NEC not to have it run through conference, so she can't have that big speech to conference where she can do a David Cameron and go, look, I'm your winner. Uh, I don't really see when she's going to have a teachable moment, as it were, to say to the party members, look, I'm the one who can, who can fix this. Um, but yeah, it's doable. It's doable. Um, and the one we haven't talked about that much, actually, is Yvette Cooper, um, who I know you've, you've written uh, a piece in the last couple of weeks sort of asking, where, where is she in this campaign? Um, I mean, so they, they do have a... They have, a, they have a, a very clear strategy, which is basically to be everyone's second choice and to come through on second preferences, which is obviously a great strategy if you come second. Uh, however, if you come third... Particularly if you're, if, if Liz Kendall comes third, basically provided she gets more than 15% of the vote, she has done better than expected, she's had a good campaign. Uh, Andy Burnham is the overwhelming frontrunner, so if he, doesn't, if he doesn't win, he's had a bad campaign. Yvette Cooper really does need to come second, uh, because she's been around since 1997. She starts with immense advantages, she is in many ways the establishment choice. And actually, you know, she's a very strong, very impressive politician... If you can't make a decent challenge when your candidate is Yvette Cooper, it does raise the question of why you're in professional politics. Uh, 
I'm not convinced that her I'll Come Second strategy works. It feels a bit like uh, the Ed Miller band, well, we'll just get Lib Dem defectors vote. Mm. Um, she's obviously winning over members of the Parliamentary Party, but at both the GMB hustings and the Fabian hustings, I struggled to find activists who could complete the sentence, I'm voting Yvette Cooper because. Uh, and, yeah, you can sort of see that she kind of thinks and she'll get the votes of people who want a woman but don't want a Blairite. Those voters exist in the Labour Party, but they really want... A woman who's not a Blairite, who also thinks that Labour were too squeamish on immigration? I'm not convinced mm. that they do. Um, obviously, it's a long campaign, and she's hired some very impressive people to do her field operations, so it is more than plausible that she'll turn it around. But, yeah, at the moment, no theme, and therefore not much hope. Mm. And now we should also talk about, there's another leadership contest going on in politics at the moment, which is for the leadership of the Liberal Democrats. Uh, bruised and battered as they are after the 2015 election, they are now uh, seeking a replacement for Nick Clegg. And in this week's uh, New Statesman Leader, uh, we've suggested that they should pick Tim Farron. And George, you've also interviewed Tim Farron in this issue. Uh, why do you think he's the one? Hmm. Well, he's a, he's a Stakanovite campaigner. He turned his seat at Westmoreland on, on Lonsdale uh, from a Tory seat that they'd held for 95 years into one of the safest seats in the country. Um, he's untainted by having served in the uh, coalition government, unlike his uh, rival candidate Norman Lamb. Uh, he, you know, he voted against uh, tuition fees, he voted against the bedroom tax, and he's also committed to the causes which I think the Lib Dems have to embody if they are to be relevant in this in this new era, environmentalism, civil liberties, social justice and constitutional reform. But yet, while Tim Farron is perhaps on the left of his party, he doesn't have the sort of purest of progressive voting records. Uh, he's a very religious man, he's abstained on gay marriage. Um, what do you think that's going to do for him, Stephen? Um, I mean, Tim Farron is going to be the Liberal Democrat leader. Uh, the mood within the Liberal Democrat Party is sufficiently strongly behind turning the page on the last five years. Um, he is this Stakhanovite uh, electoral force, and his kind of, his message, yeah, not exclusively, but his message is basically, I'm your new Paddy Ashdown, another leader who came in at a period when they looked on the brink of extinction and took them to greater heights. Um, so it won't hurt him from that perspective. Of course, outside of the Liberal Democrat Party, that he did abstain on gay marriage, uh, sorry, equal marriage, um, is, you know, is a black mark against him. His argument now is that it didn't sufficiently um, recognise trans issues and trans rights. Um, some people feel that that is a sort of clever politician's trick about voting against it. Uh, you know, ultimately, the the lesson of the last uh, sort of decade or so is that actually people tend to bank the civil rights victories they have anyway. Uh, the live issue will be whether or not the Liberal Democrats continue to support them, which they will because it's a vital part of their coalition. Um, yeah. And we should also clarify, quite a lot of people on Facebook when uh, our leader went up were disgusted that the New Statesman was apparently endorsing the Liberal Democrats. We should make clear that we are not endorsing if the Liberal were, Democrats. It would be a little late, wouldn't it? It'd be a little, I mean... you know, we've just had an election. We're not endorsing anyone at this point. We are, as George will explain, endorsing a leadership candidate within a party. Yes, we are. And, um, I mean, there's not much left of the Lib Dems to endorse, is there? I mean, <laughs> they have the same number of uh, MPs, of course, now as the uh, 
the Democratic Unionists, who, of course, when they hold their leadership election, we will be taking a, a very close <laughs> interest in. Um, but of course, I mean, such as the arithmetic of, of this parliament, the Conservatives only have a majority of 12. It's not unthinkable that the Lib Dems, if they only gain a small number of seats or, or perhaps even stand still, could still hold the balance of power in, in the next parliament. And it's interesting that Tim Farron, in his interview with me, says that um, a condition of any future coalition with the Conservatives or Labour would be the immediate introduction of proportional representation. So n not even a referendum. And I think that's a condition that uh, both parties are very unlikely to grant and can be seen as him saying, you know, it's, it, w it will be too early in our party's recovery for us to risk uh, power again. And, and that's the point, isn't it? That they, they are very, and particularly under Farron, we expect them to continue to be very much a party of the centre-left or even of the left. Hence, the New Statesman's interest in what they're up to. Yes. Well, thanks very much, George and Stephen. If you live in London, then the tube map is one of the things that you see probably most often and are most sad about. Uh, I'm joined by Barbara Speed and John Elledge of City Metric to discuss some proposed changes to it and also about its evolution over time. So, John, uh, tell me. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. About the origins of the tube map. Okay, so once upon a time, back in the, in the dark mists of history, so long ago that even I don't remember it, um, the tube map was basically geographical. Um, you kind of had a, a slightly simplified map of London and someone effectively just drawn coloured lines on it with a crayon. So what line came first? We're already moving away from the topic of maps. I can already be sliding away from maps. No, I'm just interested because obviously the Jubilee line was built to commemorate the Jubilee. The Bakerloo line is... No, that was just, that's the Baker Street Waterloo. The, the very first section of the tube to open was Paddington to Farringdon um, in, I think it was 1863. Okay, but I will, I will um, invite letters in on that. the 150th anniversary, it might have been 1864, but I'm pretty sure it was 1863. My point that I was struggling towards was the idea that actually, obviously it was fine to have a geographical tube map in the early days, but at some point it must have just become ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, distorted. The, 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 the graphical tube map we're used to now was designed by a guy called Harry Beck in the 1930s, I think. So they got on perfectly well with, well, not perfectly well, but they, they coped with the more geographical maps of 70 years. And we've only had the more modern idea of the tube map for not much longer than that. Um, but Beck's great insight was that when you're underground, it didn't really matter what was going on above you. All you needed to know was how the line you were on related to the other lines. What you're interested in was, was you know, where you need to change and where you're ultimately getting to. So... Um, so you end up with situations where bank and monument, which are about, you know, which are kind of mushed right. together into the same station, really, are on separate lines. And then, and then eventually over the years, they kind of got mushed together even further. Yeah. But there are other ones where the the, the actual above ground lines are so incredibly close to each other, aren't there? There's there's a fair few of them where it's a, it would be really 
really stupid to actually bother getting the tube between Leicester Square and Covent Garden because it, it will take you longer to get down to the platforms than it will just to walk the thing. Um, I mean, this was one of Beck's great insights was that it made much more sense to kind of uh, make the map so that the stations were all roughly evenly spaced. So there's massive uh, geographical distortion on the map. So central London, which is only like a tiny section of, of the, the tube area, is, is spread out across about half the map, really. Um, whereas, you know, when you get to sort of outer reaches, places like Upminster and Amersham, you get two or three miles between stations, but there's still the same gap between them as you get between, I don't know, Monument and Cannon Street or something in the city. And Barbara, the big problem, I guess, for the tube map is that London is just inexorably growing, and they're trying to... Well, I can say, why, John made it... That was an incredible <laughs> face, John. Why? Why? Oh, because you like that London is inexorably because, growing. Because London's not grown enough. We need to build more bloody oh, houses. Okay, but okay, anyway, sorry, I didn't, I, I didn't mean to make that visible. No. That was... I just can't. I just can't control myself sometimes, Helen. Well, um, I'm sure the Conservatives will build a lot more more houses, John. <laughs> okay. Um, so anyway, <laughs> that was a great laugh, um, Barbara. Yeah, the question I was going to ask you was what um, What are the problems with the with the tube map that we've now ended up with? Uh, well, a huge problem that's very evident on the new newest map is um, the kind of spread of overground lines, which are all exactly the same colour all interact with each other in completely bizarre ways, presumably because Beck isn't here to sort them all out. Um, but it just means that if you go to East London, you just don't have that nice graphically spread area of different coloured lines. You have this complete mess, um, which is really hard to navigate. I find the overground incredibly difficult because it's got so many kind of... You know that horrible thing when you go to a foreign country and you're trying to work out how to get from one station to another station, but... It will only say this is the one, this is the train in the direction of X station further down the line. Often not even the one at the end of the line because it's stopping several short. And you go <laughs> exactly, and lots good? of the overground lines are kind of somehow circular, but not really. And then half of them are actually train trains that don't run very often at all, but they're kind of brought in as though they're tube lines that you can rely on travelling on at any time. And it it does make the whole thing a lot more confusing. Nonetheless, I would contend, and I don't know if either of you disagree with this, that the London tube is in many ways the best tube. Um, it's yeah. I mean, London as a whole actually has incredibly good public transport, which we we often sort of let ourselves forget because we're so grumpy about the delays this morning. But yeah, it's you know it's pretty frequent. If you're in the tube area, the coverage is pretty good. Um, I think it's probably worth remembering that all of us sat around the microphones right now live in North London, where the tube is fantastic. That's true. Uh, yeah, the Victoria we, line I've lived on, and I've lived on the Jubilee line, which are like the two nicest of all the lines. I used to then, use the central line, and that was the line of hell and doom. But I just mean that there's huge swathes of London that aren't that aren't covered by the tube at all. Um, actually, one of the one of the things that's going on with the map at the moment that's quite interesting is that they are, as Barbara say, says, uh, bringing in more of the sort of what used to be national rail lines, the sort of overground orange, and they've got a, a blue line out to, to Essex that's going to be part of the crossrail which they've put on there because Transport for London is running them. But in some ways, it's a little bit misleading. misleading. It's, it's then You're not going to get tube-level frequencies in these things. Um, I mean, my favourite example, there's a tiny branch line between Romford and Upminster, which I, I grew up living behind, um, where there's like two trains an hour. It's like a single-track line. 
but it's now on there in sort of the, the same colour as the, the overground around North London, as mm. if you're going to get a like decent urban metro frequency on there, and you're just not. So it's When I say it's the, it's the best, I think I'm only really comparing it with the Paris metro and the New York metro. So everyone kind of goes, oh, the great thing about the New York metro is you've got these twin tech rides, so it, you know, when they do maintenance, they can still keep it running, so it runs much later. And I know TfL have been doing a lot of stuff about wanting to make the tube run later particularly at, at weekends but the stations like in terms of the technology that lets you in and out like it's it's so easy still and so much of paris and i think new york too although i haven't been back for a couple of years to skip fares and kind of get through stuff which is just almost impossible in london as far as i can see unless you're really quick at walking behind someone else through the gate and that tends to make them think that you know you're slightly peculiar i would imagine um but also in terms of the fact that the central insight of of, of painting all the stations white all like blindingly white inside, tiling everything incredibly white inside, makes them so much feel so much more brightly lit, much safer than you ever feel in other metros. I know what you feel, how you feel about that, Barbara. Yeah, and I think also I mean, there's been a lot of complaints in Britain recently about kind of staffing on in stations with like closing of tickets, ticket booths, and that kind of thing. But actually, I think staff in especially the underground network, there are loads of them, and that again makes things safer everything's kind of automated and you have those weird things in Paris that are just these sort of doors that you can get folded into and you just don't have any faith anyone will ever rescue you. Uh, but yeah, I think they've done a good job of keeping the stations quite nicely renovated. And Tokyo Metro is amazing, but if you think that our ARG map is hard to understand, then try, you know, an urban area with that many people with... I mean, I, I don't think you should be allowed to look at the Tokyo Metro map, John, because I think it would probably be like all too much for you. City Metrics content for the next year sorted out, I think. <laughs> Um, I mean, I think this is this is kind of where London is getting to with the tube map. I mean, as, as we were saying, they do they are increasingly adding what we would have previously thought of as British rail lines to the map, and it means it's getting much more crowded. And that kind of basic, uh, that simplified graphical version that, that Harry Beck came up with gets harder and harder to do. Um, Beck also actually did a, a design for the Paris Metro. Um, but that never came off. Like they, the, 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 it was sort of officially commissioned, but the, the, the Paris authorities just never used it because the, the metro there is is that bit more complicated. There's that so there's a, enough extra lines mm. that it just didn't work in the same way. So they just never used the thing. And I wonder if London is getting towards that point now. There's only so much you can show and make it sort of understandable at a glance. And so many colours, presumably, as well. At some point, you are just going to run out of decently, easily distinguishable colours. Yeah, there are, there are sort of limitations on just how the human eye works. So. Um, before we end, I'm just going to ask you to nominate your favourite articles on transport that are currently on citymetric.com. Pick a favourite, go on, you know you can. Well, we recently did a piece on um, the... TFL's new design for its new tube map is pretty ugly and full of mistakes. Um, so it's a good, uh, just a run through of how not to make your own tube map. And the Emirates Airline, the dangle yes, way. has been deleted, sadly. Although there's, on this particular map, there's still a sort of dangling cable car left in the middle of the Didn't map. someone do Ghost an FOI like, uh, request and find out that about like, 12 people using it to commute or something? Well, no, those, those are actually official uh, figures that are available out there. We worked out there are fewer people using it than there are... Uh, a sort of little bus that runs in past Norfolk Park Hospital, somewhere out in the outer reaches in Middlesex. Um, yeah, it's a complete waste of money and a massive humiliation for all concerned. Um, Although no one seems to have got any, no one, everyone seems to have been a bit like, ah, it's funny. Yeah, it was Boris, isn't it? Legend! I feel that you're just going to become progressively angry during yeah. the course of this government um, job. I, I was going to answer your question. Yes. Um, we, we've been running a series of articles by, by an American transport 
consultant called Jarrett Walker, who's, who's, who literally wrote the book on how to make transport networks work. And he's, he's writing a series of articles for us, just kind of explaining basic things like how grid systems work and you know why, why you want to show um, service frequency on transport maps. So if you're a proper map geek like wow. you know me, yeah. um, then I would suggest reading those because they're brilliant. Okay, well that's, two, that's an entry-level recommendation and then a full-on train nerd recommendation, so that's nice. But for the moment, thank you very much, John and Barbara. I'm Anusha Kellyan and I'm the Deputy Web Editor of the New Statesman and I'm joined by Tosin Thompson, our Welcome Scholar, uh, to talk about an article that she wrote recently about why we get so bored and whether or not boredom is actually useful. So first of all, Tosin, I have to ask you, why did you decide to do this article? Were you feeling bored at work by any chance? <laughs> I think we're just, as people, just concerned about our psychology. It, it fascinates us, it intrigues us and... That was one of many things that I had in mind. You know, why do we get bored? It, you know, we all suffer from boredness, or at least most of us do. So what is the science behind it? And that's why I wrote the article. Okay, <laughs> and, and did you find anything surprising when you were researching it? Was there anything you, you didn't expect to come across? Yeah, I initially, th I initially thought that boredom was quite a counterproductive thing. Um, you know, when, when you're bored, you just tend to just sit around and it tends to have byproducts such as anger and frustration and so when I found out that boredom is actually a drive to you know new stimulation and doing new fresh things it was quite it was very insightful and I felt less guilty for <laughs> sometimes being bored bored and then frustrated about being bored and so in a way boredom sort of drives us to do other things with our lives perhaps be a bit more imaginative about the things that we're doing and the way that we're approaching things yeah. is that right so yeah there have been plenty of studies concerning boredom and how productive it can be. For example, there were researchers conducted a study where 80 volunteers were given a very boring task of writing numbers in a phone book. And then after that, they had a creative task. And those, and well, 80, 80 of them, one didn't, you know, weren't doing anything. And mm. some of them were doing boring stuff. And of those people who were doing boring stuff, they were far more creative in a creative task after that than those who didn't do anything boring at all. Oh, I see, okay. Yeah, so it does compel us. It, it, it sort of drives us to do... It sort of reinforces, you know, creativity because we've had that boredom had, you know, done to us. So we've sort of pent up our creativity in a way. You could say that, yeah. Yeah, okay. And um, I wonder if you could explain very briefly the science behind why we get so bored. Um, we're just... It's the reason why we have, you know, a man's been on the moon or mm. we have the shard or airplanes. <laughs> it's it's a very much evolutionary thing and a very natural selective thing that we have. And we have to thank our ancestors for it because we wouldn't be as advanced and as progressive as we are if it wasn't for boredom, which, mm. is, which is quite funny to think about it. Mm. And what happens is when you're bored, this hormone called cortisol, it's a stress hormone. And so we have faster, you know, heart rates. You know, and we get stressful and angry and so that compels us to do something new do something fresh and when we do something new and fresh we release this neurotransmitter called dopamine mm -hmm. and dopamine is you know happy 
happy neurotransmitter makes us happy and joyful. And so when you get given that new phone or you buy that new outfit, you feel ooh, very happy and, you know, gleeful that you have that, that thing until after a while, I guess the levels start to drop and then you become very used to that thing and then you get bored again and so the, it sort of recycles and recycles okay. so it's this continuous <laughs> and so you're forever something new yes seeking a new stimulus kind yes, of yes i don't i yeah. think as humans we're not particularly satisfied with what we have we want something new we, we do get bored let's let's be honest we do want new things and i remember what was interesting in your piece was you spoke to some scientists about mm. about boredom and one of them was complaining that it's not a very sexy topic that people she <laughs> called it a cinderella subject yes, and yes. that people always want to read about stress and why they get stressed but boredom never gets to go to the ball or something yeah it's a disaffiliation with laziness and you, you don't have a right to be bored why boredom and it, it it is it is a you know it is a fascinating and quite a um it's a, it's quite a subject that just isn't it isn't that looked into mm. in comparison to stress or other forms of, you know, mental mental things that we, we go through. So, yeah, it, it doesn't get to go to the ball. It doesn't get the gleaming, shiny dress that other um, conditions um, have. Okay, well, at least you've given it that on the New Statesman website yeah. this week. Um, thank you very much, Tosin. Thanks for listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Caroline Crampton. Our producer today was Anna Leskovich. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. And you can find more details and all our back episodes on newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. And now it's time for Stephen Bush's Joke of the Week. This week in the magazine, we have a feature by the poet Craig Rain who came under fire after a poem that some people believed to be uh, literary lecturing, try saying that three times fast, uh, in which he basically told people to stop giving such a hard time. That's right. His message was, don't rain on my parade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.